0: I'm Andy Stanford-Clark. I'm the CTO for IBM UK in Ireland, which gives me responsibility across all of IBM's technologies, talking to CTOs of clients to explain to them the exciting futures of how you mix quantum with blockchain, with Z, with a bit of augmented reality, and how that comes together in a really exciting set of solutions that we build in the future. I've been doing that role for two years. Before that, the last 20 years uh, were spent working in what we now call Internet of Things, Back in 1998, in fact 1999, we published the first specification for the IoT messaging protocol MQTT, which hopefully your listeners may have heard of, and I co-designed that with one of our business partners. And the following 20 years were spent evangelizing the internet of things which back then was called things like pervasive computing and ubiquitous computing and smarter planet we finally settled on internet of things telling the world about internet of things and effectively creating a marketplace for that billion trillion dollar industry whatever you want to put the numbers on that we now find ourselves in which is really exciting it is really exciting. And I'm an IoT
1: hardware hacking type. So I, I was super excited to talk about specifically MQTT, because it was what, maybe two weeks ago, it was the, the anniversary, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, a couple of weeks ago is the 20th anniversary of MQTT being published, although I was working on it for a couple of years before that, before we actually published the first version of the specification. But if you look on the web, the actual published date is there for all to see. And if folks aren't familiar with what it
1: is, it's a small format messaging protocol for embedded devices and sensors.
0: Yeah, so it's really extending the idea of enterprise messaging, which we know and love so well with MQ Series, Uh, which I used to work on ages ago, we wanted to extend that outside the walls of the enterprise to reach down to what were then called SCADA devices, so devices in the field that are gathering data from things like oil and gas pipelines and electricity substations and so on, and send that data back into the enterprise to be part of the situational awareness and the um, business context of the enterprise. And so we needed a cut-down version of, effectively, enterprise messaging. So I went right back to square one and said, okay, we're on really low bandwidth, The lines are really expensive to send data over, maybe satellite comms links and stuff like that. We need to go right back to basics. So what's the bare minimum necessary to send a message reliably from A to B um, so that both people know that it's both sent and received and all that kind of stuff and know if one of the devices has disappeared off the network because a link went down. So how do we build all that in? So we just built it up bit by tiny feature at a time until we had just enough necessary and sufficient. And that was MQTT version 2 at the time. And that actually stood the test of time for 10 years. So even when Internet of Things and cloud and all these things came along, we didn't actually make any changes at all to the original spec for 10 years, which I think is a real testament to the, if I may say so, the foresight that we had in anticipating the uses to which uh, the protocol was going to be put, which was pretty amazing given we had no idea it was going to be used across many different industries, from healthcare to agriculture, away from the original intended application of oil and gas pipelines. It's
1: also interesting story to highlight the relationship between enterprise tech and open source. Here's something that was made for client needs. But then opened up and became this huge boom for for many different players.
0: Yeah, and that was amazing because that was back in 1999. That was a real shock to IBM's system, and the lawyers in particular. When I said, "Sorry, this is, this protocol's got to be in the public domain," and, oh no, but we have got to own the IP. And, uh, no, <laughs> you weren't listening to me. This has got to be in the public domain because that's really what sets it apart from all the existing proprietary Scada protocols. So we succeeded in open sourcing it, putting it in the public domain right back then. But even then, only IBM had implemented the broker end of things, the server. So although the client was free and you could download it and you could implement it yourself, nobody apart from IBM had implemented the server side of it. They could have done, but they chose not to. So it was still seen as IBM proprietary. And we thought maybe we were tricking people into, you have to buy our stuff even though we're saying it's open source. But that all changed uh, 10 years ago in uh, 2009 where I spoke at the first OGCAMP unconference in Liverpool. And uh, I was giving a talk about all the cool IoT stuff I was doing, automating my home and having electronic mouse traps and tracking the Isle of Wight ferries and all these cool projects. And there was a, somebody asked a question from the audience, was this proprietary stuff or was it open source? Slightly cheekily, because it was an open source conference. So I think he was trying to nail me with the you know, IBM stuff, really. So I said, no, it is all public domain. But between you and me, if somebody wants to do an open source implementation of the broker, that would be really cool. I've still got the MP3 sound clip, which I played at Count this year in commemoration of the uh, 10 years since that happened. And there's a guy called Roger Light in the audience. and He was so inspired by this stuff, he rushed home registered the project Mosquito, with two T, so MQTT in the name, and the um, open source MQTT broker was born that night, or certainly conceived that night, and I think that really that was the tipping point because suddenly the world knew that MQTT really was open, not just some sleight of hand by IBM, and that was the turning point in terms of the meteoric escalation of its use and the um, standardization through Oasis and ISO, adoption by Facebook Messenger, people embedding it into solutions and hardware and that we've seen ever since it's fascinating too
1: that it's such thin threads that tie this together literally one talk at one conference and one
0: person inspired absolutely because you could never have planned for that you know if i go and give present you, know, you plan which presentations you're going to give at which conferences and which are the high impact ones but this was it was a very it was an unconference it was linuxy geeky tech stuff i just went because some of my friends who did another podcast were presenting at it so i just tagged along and just, it all just flew from there so yeah amazing serendipity
1: you mentioned in passing the Isle of Wight ferry and when I had met Chris Bailey at Oracle Code One, this is the first thing he said to me. He said, you have to ask Andy Stanford-Clark about the Isle of Wight ferry. So can you tell us the story of the ferry and how you did it? And then also the lovely display you
0: have downstairs. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Okay, I, I live on the Isle of Wight and have done for 21 years. And so I traveled to work most days by ferry from Cows on the northern tip of the Isle of Wight to Southampton on a boat called the Red Jet. And a long time ago... 10 years ago, there was no way of knowing if the ferries were running or not, or if it's a foggy morning or a stormy day or something, the ferries might not be running. There's no way of finding that out. So I figured that maybe using IoT data, we might be able to track the ferries so I could see before I left home if I was going to be able to catch the ferry or not. So it turns out that all the boats have this thing called AIS, Automatic Identification System, which is fortunate because I didn't imagine the ferry company was going to let me put sensors on their boat because they're a bit precious about them. So uh, this AIS data is publicly available. It's been transmitted by all the boats and then received by a network of receivers of people who put it all into a central database, and you can log in and collect the rectangle that you're interested in of the world. I was picking the the Solent area around the Isle of Wight, and you can see all the boats that are in there. So I'm sitting in my car at the at the ferry port, slightly annoyed there's no ferries that morning. I've got my laptop on my lap with a, I guess back then it was a 2G modem, <laughs> connected to the internet. So I wrote a little Perl script to connect to this public database collect the database, collect the data for the uh, solent region, and then strip out all the ferries by name, so all the different ones like Reget 3, Reget 4, and the latitude and longitude, so I knew where each one was and that and the direction and speed. Then I used geofencing, which put a little circle around each of the ferry ports to find out when the boat's going in or out of that circle. And then I sent a message to Twitter. So each ferry route has its own Twitter stream. So, Twitter.com slash redjets, for example, is the, the redjet stream. And you can see the leaving times and arriving times of each ferry as it goes at, at, between West Cows and Southampton. Uh, and that was great. That, was, that basically solved the, the real world problem for me, which is what most of my inventions are, you know, solutions to problems that I see um, out there or that I face. And loads of people were using it to track the ferries and plan their journeys and so on. So that was great. And because it was on Twitter, many people could receive the data that I was seeing as well. So I wasn't keeping it to myself. So I opened up that data feed. And the ferry companies themselves weren't involved in any way with that. Except one day, and it was April the 1st, I remember it well, I was looking at the timetable for the ferry departures on the ferry website. And I noticed it said live ferry times, live ferry departures. And it said registries, arriving in West Cows and so on. I thought oh, that's interesting, that's the same data as I've got. I wonder where it's coming from. So I clicked through the link and it went to my Twitter page. That's interesting, I thought. So what they were doing, it turns out, was pulling an RSS feed off Twitter and merging it live into their website, which is pretty cool, but they hadn't asked me or told me or anything, so I was a little bit annoyed. So because it was April the 1st, and because I could, I thought I'd play a little trick on them. So I logged into the Twitter feed and typed Red Jet 4's arrived in Milton Keynes, which for people who don't live in the UK is nowhere near the sea. It's in the middle of the country, you can't get there by boat. So for the next hour, that became the official status of Red Jet 4 on the Red Funnel website, which I thought was hilarious. We got, it, got it on local radio and blogged about it and got it all over Twitter, and it's great. great. So later that afternoon, I felt guilty about it. So I phoned Red Funnel and said, have you seen where Red Jet 4 is? And I said, yes, we've just noticed. I think we should meet. I think we should. So we met the next morning, and I thought I'd be in trouble for mutilating their website. But actually, they were very pleased. They said, look, we've been trying to get into social media since the beginning of the year. It's April. We haven't got a clue what we're doing, as evidenced by the fact we didn't know how to contact you to ask if we could use your Twitter feed. Well, you could have tweeted me. Yeah, we know that now, but we didn't know that. So easiest sale in IBM's history. They bought the solution, which is now running in their Southampton data center. And they're great friends of ours. And it's really been a tipping point for them because they now use Twitter themselves, as a social media platform, to interact with their customers, the commuters. So you can tweet them and ask questions about when the last ferry is or what the ferry costs are or something. The IoT hack has really opened up for them uh, a new channel of communication with their customers, which is a real competitive advantage for them and made us all receive a much better service from them. So that's, that's been a great win.
1: That is such a fascinating story. It's really it's so interesting. And I love it from that's a developer story too, because you're just looking to solve this problem for yourself to make your life easier. And you are the
0: proxy for not only the company but all of their users. And that's why exactly why we do design thinking now, because you put yourself into the shoes of the end user of your solution and then you work back towards the the thing you're gonna design. So that whole sort of outside in design is epitomized and embodied there.
1: Oh, and before I forget, there's a lovely piece down in the Hursley House that
0: shows all this data in real time, and it's quite uh, beautiful as well. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so this is a piece of artwork called Fairy Lights, which is actually a pun, because if you live in the Isle of Wight and speak Isle of Wightese, fairy instead of ferry. So it's like fairy lights, which is a bit like you know, dancing Christmas tree lights and so on. So what happened was that three years ago, I was very lucky to be named one of the Isle of Wight's hidden heroes. They named seven hidden heroes for people who've done something quite impressive in the world but most people in the Isle of Wight probably wouldn't know about so it's kind of to inspire particularly a younger generation of, of STEM STEM students to uh, adopt technology and engineering and uh, so I was recognized for the work my contribution to the Internet of Things with MQTT and as part of it there was an exhibition in a, in one of our local art galleries and uh, there's some, some funding available to make an art exhibit representing characterizing each of our work and I didn't really have a clue, you know, I didn't, couldn't think of a piece of artwork. So I thought, well, you know, something to do with ferries, something to do with LEDs, something that's interactive, something to do with the Internet of Things. So I teamed up with a, a local artist called Debbie Davis, who's an interactive artist. And uh, we dreamed up this thing, which essentially is a piece of laser-cut acrylic, the outsized model of the Isle of Wight, because the Isle of Wight's so important to those of us who live there, uh, and the mainland outline, the shoreline. And then there's rows of LEDs going across for each of the ferry routes, each of the five ferry routes. Uh, essentially what we do is we pick up live AIS data and we put little dots onto the LEDs showing the current position of the boats in real time. So this piece of artwork which has no wires, it's just hanging on the wall, so it's like magical. And it, it's done as a as a half mirror, so it's done as an infinity mirror. So it looks like there's an infinite regress of of lights going back, like a tunnel of lights, which looks really impressive, particularly in a darkened room. And then it's also got the it's got the live ferries going backwards and forwards. And then around the outside, it's got this thing called cheer lights, which is another uh, Twitter phenomenon invented by a guy called Hans Schaller a few years ago at Christmas to spread a bit of cheer through lights. And the idea is that you tweet at cheer lights red, say, or some colour, and then all the cheer lights devices in the world all change colour simultaneously to red. So you can get a little pleasure by going, oh, I've just changed all those thousands of lights to red. And indeed, there are lots of people around the world have implemented cheer lights, and so this so fairy lights includes a, a cheer lights display. So you can stand in front of it and tweet cheer lights yellow, and all the lights go yellow inside it. So it's pretty cool. Interesting, and I hadn't gotten that
1: part of the story. I had only gotten the the fairy portion. So I feel like it might be nice to give our listeners a little context about. Where we are at Hursley, what is Hursley and how it fits into the IBM strategy of innovation?
0: Sure. So Hursley is one of our development labs. So IBM deliberately separates the R from the D. So we don't have R and D facilities like some companies do, we separate the R, which is the, the research labs like Yorktown and Zurich and Almaden. They do this sort of the five to ten year blue sky research and the development labs, which are again a number dotted around the world, of which Hursley is the largest, second largest outside the US, second to Bangalore. And we do this of the naught to five-year, what I tend to think of as applied research. So it's going from where we are now to the extension of our existing products and the next generation of our products and where they'll go next, bringing in a lot of innovation, a lot of scope for patenting ideas. I've got 43 patents from my work here at Hursley over the years. And we serve a worldwide marketplace. So although we're based in the UK, we support MQ and Kix and Java and a whole bunch of products which uh, are sold worldwide. And we have responsibility for the support of for things like the uh, Watson IoT platform. We also do the DevOps as well. So we actually run the platform from here in Hursley for the worldwide IoT platform instances. And so I've been here in Hursley since my first day at IBM, which was uh, 28 years ago now. And uh, I've been in the development organization for most of that time working my way up through the developer ranks. I finally became a distinguished engineer for Internet of Things, which I was seven or eight years ago, and had a worldwide responsibility in the Internet of Things division, supporting our customers as they ramp up from the early prototype this small proof of concept with a you know, 10 raspberry Pis, up to the, the huge deployment of tens of thousands maybe millions of cars or escalators or washing machines rolling off production lines and uh, being fitted with the smarts to give them telemetry feedback from the field to do things like predictive maintenance and allow them to become smart devices so that was a very satisfying role I had uh, clocked up lots of air miles <laughs> i spent a lot of time at the munich iot center but my base has always been here in Hursley, and i've very much feel at home in Hursley and my office has been here uh, ever since and uh, even though I now have a, a UK and Ireland role and I'm traveling around a lot visiting clients I always like to come back to Hursley usually, usually once a week to uh, say hi to everybody and just find out what cool stuff's going on particularly in the demo labs and down in immersion technology and see what the living lab technologies are up to now and uh, maybe contribute some of my thoughts and prototypes to as demonstrations in those labs as well to really you know to help push along the technology demonstrations also to inspire people with new generation of upcoming people just try out cool ideas because i think maybe lost a little bit the the feeling that it's okay to innovate and people should take a bit of time out to try out an idea because that's really where the new ideas which can turn out to be new billion dollar products come from a you know, little friday afternoon skunkworks project going on I had visited earlier this week
1: and had gotten a a tour. I've been through the Emerging Tech Lab. I've seen your maker space, your media space, the the client center. And I must say, the thing that really did strike me about the campus in general is you can feel there really is like a buzz and a culture of, of innovation here. People are excited. For example, I had also interviewed Ed Moffitt from the design team with several of the designers and that was actually a really interesting window to understand how the designers are working with the product teams but also collaborating together and tied again into like very tight feedback loops with the clients. So there really is a culture of innovation and an excitement around this campus.
0: Yes, and we tried very hard with Steve Stephen Warwick, the current lab director, he's made a real effort to nurture that, that buzz, as you mentioned. We've got lovely grounds here, it's great to go for a walk at lunchtime. That's not just to have some exercise, that's when ideas start to ferment and they turn into you know, brilliant inventions in the afternoon. And you, you can't just buy or just switch on that kind of environment, it's something we've nurtured over decades here in Hursley and those of us who've been here for a while and recognize that have worked really quite hard to nurture that spirit of innovation and set up the makerspace and as I said it's okay to innovate. And I'm imagining people are recognizing now we're in
1: this hybrid multi-cloud world. So could you maybe give us some insight or your thoughts on this hybrid multi-cloud world we're in and and sort of how IBM is approaching this? Well, yeah.
0: So we just had the Think Summit in London about three weeks ago. And it was really interesting there to challenge CTOs of clients on just how many clouds they are actually using. And they say, oh, we've decided to go with Amazon. Okay, end of story. No, no, no. You're using Salesforce, you're using Concur, you've got using SAP, you're using Oracle's cloud. Okay, that's five. <laughs> oh, and you're doing some hosting on Amazon and you're doing your Office 365 on Microsoft and you're running some analytics on Watson on IBM's cloud. Okay, now we're up to 10. <laughs> and before you know it, you go, oh, yeah, actually. So without realizing it, people are inadvertently adopting a multi-cloud strategy. They just don't really recognize it as such. They just think we've got one kind of cloud provider for our hosting, cloud hosting, and that's it. But it really isn't. So the trick then becomes recognizing that what you're actually doing is your taking a workload and spreading it quite thinly across the different elements of the cloud. And it's really not so much that it's multi-cloud which is just the cloud <laughs> capital t capital c if people think about it as being that and recognizing that if you look same as if you look up in the skies and just full of one cloud it's full of lots of different clouds you can think about well, some of it's over there and some of it's over there some of it's over there oh and by the way our core systems of records are running on a z15 in our data center and that's not going to change anytime soon okay so we need to bridge that into the cloud for the for the web ui and the the online app okay that's no problem that's the enterprise integration part that ibm's always been so good at so there's Suddenly you go, what's that then? Oh, the name we give to that is hybrid multi-cloud. The trick is to manage that as if it's one homogeneous infrastructure. And so IBM allows you to do exactly that by spreading your stuff around. And what we might start to see is that people actually start moving workloads for things like carbon intensity. So if, for example... Iceland's got some spare capacity, they're all on geothermal power, so it's very low carbon to run stuff in their their data centres. You might have a a little broker, a little agent that's sitting there looking for opportunities to run certain jobs in low carbon environments. So you might actually be able to net off carbon credits for low carbon use of of data centres. This stuff hasn't happened yet. We're on the edge of that kind of arbitrage being done, a brokerage of jobs being run in the cloud, recognising the cloud is lumpy because some of it's high cost and some of it's low cost and some of it's high performance and some of it's got GPUs and some of it's got mainframes. And So you always move the right stuff to the right place. And the other thing that some people are doing now is actually moving compute to where the data is so rather than the other way around. It's more of a data flow architecture rather than a von Neumann architecture. So, you're actually saying, well, I've got this massive data lake sitting over here. I'm going to take, send my functions so they're co located with the data and actually run them locally rather than having to trawl vast amounts of data back across the internet. So, we're starting to see some write quite sophisticated algorithms for a routing of both compute and data flows moving around the internet. Really exciting stuff, which actually is roughly what my PhD was about 30 years ago. <laughs> And that
1: same paradigm, this is when you hear so much now about edge, right? And I think it's confusing to people because one person's cold storage could be next to another person's edge. It all depends on the the context of your needs and your workloads.
0: Yeah, so a really good example is the Mayflower 400 project that we're working on with a company in Plymouth that makes autonomous vessels, boats, and Plymouth University here in the UK. And the plan is to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the original Mayflower sailing. We're going to sail an autonomous boat from Plymouth, UK to Plymouth, Massachusetts, It's going to take about two weeks. The boat is a 15 meter trimaran uh, and it's going to be packed full of scientific experiments because you have no people on board. It's going to be completely autonomous. And IBM's AI is going to be driving the boat. So it's going to be navigating. It's going to be looking at weather forecasts from the weather company. It's going to be bringing in factors like have we got enough solar input to charge the batteries to maybe to run at this speed or do we have to go slower or do we have to reroute to avoid the storm that's coming up what are the overall mission objectives have we collected enough data from this area yet do we need to go backwards and forwards a few times to collect more salinity data so the whole thing is going to be driven by a combination of ibm's power vision processing And also, a piece of enterprise software called ODM, Operational Decision Manager, which has actually been around for ages in enterprise, but actually does a rule-based decision-making system. So we've done things like the collision regulations, which are the rules of the road for boats to use. We've, we've encoded those into ODM so that now the boat can make, when it sees a boat in front of it, going from left, let's say, it can make an intelligent decision as to where, which side of it to pass, whether it should ram in front of it or steer behind it, or if it's an iceberg, what it should it do? If it's an animal, what it should, should it do? We've put in the profiles of all these different obstacles it might see, and we're teaching it at the moment yeah, down in Plymouth Sound. To recognize these different visual objects and then to take the appropriate evasive action now all that processing because we're going to be offline for most of the journey has to be done at the edge so this is a you know, perfect example where you do your ai training in the cloud and on big power ai systems with loads of gpus and you do the real heavy compute there but when you come up with the final model you download that into the boat onto an edge processing system and then link the cameras into that link the ODM into that so that all the decisions made by a distributed cluster of edge devices on the boat and it's only if it really gets into trouble it can give us a call on the satellite phone and say I've come to the end of my decision tree I don't know what to do help and then we can guide it but the plan is to make it fully autonomous and it will sail from Plymouth to Plymouth and we'll be looking forward to welcoming it as it comes into into the harbour over there. That's fascinating. And
1: just to give our listeners some context of what would be the business applications.
0: Yeah, so the two main areas where you, Edge has its kind of main applications. One is where the connectivity isn't so good, either because of latency or bandwidth. So your drone example would probably be a bandwidth one. Or that you've got to make a decision sufficiently quickly that you haven't got time to round trip it to the cloud and back. Maybe in a, a factory automation system where you've got a lathe you're monitoring and you've got to decide whether to move the lathe head left or right. And the other area is where the bandwidth requirement is so high. So if you get you've got sensors which are producing, say video or acoustic data or very fine resolution data from a transformer in an energy system where you get just gonna get so much data you can't realistically ship it up to the cloud and process it. Because normally what happens is you throw 99% of it away because you're looking for features, you're looking for events in that data. If you can have the edge computing System sufficiently powerful that it itself can look for the, the features and the events in that raw data, it can safely throw away the rest of it and just send out the events, which might be one byte for every gigabyte of raw data. It's, 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 it's moving up the data information knowledge insight triangle, the DIKI um, triangle. So we're actually moving up to higher value being added to the data and the big wide base of that triangle is raw data that you can largely throw away. So, something I like to ask everyone on the podcast
1: is about their tech origin story. So, for me, my family manufactured entertainment lighting, and I got a Commodore 64, and I was just hooked. What's your tech origin story? What kicked it off in the beginning
0: for you? My dad was keen on electronics, and back then, when I was a child, electronics meant transistors and resistors and capacitors. Uh, TTL chips, you know, logic chips, were just coming in the mid-70s So, for, for hobbyist use. So, I started making little games with AND gates and OR gates and stuff, and... That kind of got me into the idea of logical electronics, which fitted very well with the way I thought about the world. Um, and then kind of, the first home computer kit started coming out. And I was thinking, computers? I, I think I remember when I was four, I actually asked for a computer for, for Christmas. My parents told me I was so disappointed not to get a computer. Um, needless to say, they weren't really available for purchase back then. It had been a whole room-sized thing. Yeah, uh, but I did get the Ladybird Book of Computers, which basically, that sealed my fate. I and mean, I saw all the different applications that computers were already being put to things like agricultural control, industrial applications, health applications, monitoring patients in hospital beds, data processing of different sorts, uh, running you know, aircraft navigation, all those different uses that computers could be put for. That idea of a, a single machine having so many different uses and all... The idea that a set of log- instructions that you encode here can have some influence on the real world so writing some software here might make a motor work or make an led come on so really that was internet of things way back then so what's happened now is come around full circle so having trained as a software engineer and still have this kind of hankering after so electronics has always been my hobby but never my my profession but now with internet of things it's back to being both again so uh, i get to play with the technologies i love um, and get paid for it which is cool although now in my CTO role I've uh, had to leave the IoT stuff during the day to, to other people and IoT is my evening and weekend hobby now so. <laughs> but I still do quite a bit of
1: it. So I know that you are traveling around a lot now in your role as CTO, and you're meeting a lot of uh, probably other CTOs and C-suite folks. So what are you talking about with them? What what are they asking? Let's uh, give our listeners some insight into what's going on.
0: Yeah, we've done a lot of studies recently to try and find out what's on the minds of CTOs, what's keeping them awake at night. And it's interesting to see that even without prompting, cloud and AI come out as the top two, and cybersecurity, the third one. So there's that kind of magic triangle, if you like, of cybersecurity, cloud, and AI And on the grounds that you need cloud to process all the data for AI, but you need to secure it, wrap very nicely together. But the CTOs I meet are, to a greater or lesser extent, like me. They're a bit geeky and they like tech stuff, even though it doesn't directly relate to what they're feeding into their own businesses. So when we start talking about virtual reality or genuine applications of blockchain, which is actually awesome... Or uh, quantum computing, which is my favourite other topic. So I'm one of IBM's quantum ambassadors. They really get excited about the the future and start to think about how the those building blocks that we have today fuse together to make really sophisticated solutions in the future. So rather than having to write everything from scratch, we're really building on the shoulders of giants to have libraries and microservices and APIs that we can call technology chunks and we see this in iot as well things like you rather have to build your own computer you can buy a raspberry pi or an arduino you don't have to build sensors with resistors and capacitors anymore you buy a little sensor board from adafruit or pimeroni or somebody And just literally plug it in. So the barrier for entry has become so much lower because now you can almost think, what problem do I want to solve? And then there on the shelf, and with a bit of Googling around, you'll be able to find very quickly the components you need to build something. And that's really what we're seeing in the enterprise space as well people building, particularly with cloud, where writing an application, rather than it being tens of thousands of lines of monolithic code like it was when I was a lad, is now really a choreography of calls to apis so you set up your data you call an api you take the results process that a bit call another api so it's really a descent through a set of api calls which is a totally different way of writing applications but much more in terms of rapid time to value or rapid time to wow even that you can get something working very much more quickly and technologies like Node-RED, which, which actually came from here in Hursley, allows you to very quickly string together in a low-code sort of way applications. are very sophisticated. So I think that really uh, characterizes the, this new approach to writing applications that we're seeing in the cloud, which makes life so much more modular. It's, it's that really agile approach that's um, a very natural way of expressing a problem and iteratively creating a solution rather than having to go away, you know, do a waterfall solution and then come out with a, here's my solution 18 months later oh, yes, that's what you were working on 18 months ago, whereas you can be doing stuff incrementally and showing it to people as you go along. It is really
1: fascinating how we've seen in the hardware the same thing we've seen in the software, is modularization,
0: and it allows a much faster way to get to a solution. Yeah, absolutely. The, the fourth thing on CTO's list actually was open source and the way that it's it's revolutionized in the way I've just described in terms of building blocks that they haven't got to go away and write themselves. But that just changed your whole relationship with the idea of what some clients mentioned, you know, one, one throat to choke, which I think is a horrible thing to say, but they say you know, they want to know who to phone if their system goes down and there's a lot of satisfaction saying we phone IBM if it doesn't work and that's satisfying for them but in fact it turns out that if you actually contribute to the open source projects that you consume then you're known to the developer community. So if you have a problem, you raise an issue on GitHub in the middle of it, and it's sitting there for three weeks going, oh, yes, maybe we'll get around to that. Oh, it's Andy raising a bug. Quick, let's have a look at it. And you might get an answer within minutes. You know, Somebody somewhere in the world will be looking at it. And the, the open source projects that have been most successful have been ones where the main participants in the project, in terms of contributing to it, have been the main consumers of it in their businesses as well. And that's a good example is ING Bank using a project called Egeria, which is an open data lake and data governance project project, which actually people on this corridor are working on, which the bank is using it as their core infrastructure for their data lake, and they're also the core developers on the open source projects. It's, it's the whole give-to-get thing. You give and you take. It's funny, I actually had the opportunity to
1: interview Mandy Chessel at Open Source Summit about this exact project, and right away when I heard about it, I could see how it fit in with these other pieces, especially if you have a lot of metadata. Exactly. (laughs) It's all come run full circle. (laughs) Well, I feel so fortunate too, especially in this role as podcasting. You know, they always say there's like the hallway track at the conference. I feel like I have my own podcast track where I'm getting to interview all these experts and, and really learn the technology. If our listeners wanted to keep up with, say, your IoT projects, where can they find you on social media? Do you have a blog? What, what are some good uh, ways to keep up with Andy Stanford-Clark?
0: Uh, the best way to follow me on Twitter, at AndySC. That's where all my stuff goes. I blog occasionally, stanfordclark.com with a hyphen. It's where I tend to put the articles. I sometimes guest blog on things like RS Component, Design Spark. But yeah, I sometimes write guest blogs. But usually Twitter is the best way to find out what I'm up to. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a huge pleasure, Luke. Nice to meet you. Thank you.